Well, good morning, guys. It is good to be back together with you again. I hope uh, that you have been enjoying some of this great and fabulous weather that we have been receiving. Um, thank you for all who have uh, been in touch. And uh, thank you for also giving me a very nice uh, Easter break off. I uh, was able to enjoy that with family and Nonetheless, with all of the uh, challenges, we were able to make a great day of that and study the uh, Passion Week of Christ and, and his uh, death and, and burial and resurrection. And I hope that that was a, uh, a joy for you as well. Um, I wanted to uh, thank um, particularly a family in the church that sent me a precious, precious gift, and that is the smiles of the congregation itself. Uh, I, I don't know if you can see that or not, but I have all of you here with me today because I was complaining. Hang on, let me get this back here. I was complaining about how challenging it can be not having people face to face, and now I have all of you in front of me, and all of you are smiling and happy, and hopefully by the end of the sermon you will still be there uh, smiling and happy, I suspect so, as I now have a captive audience. So good to be back together with you today. We're continuing in our study on the attributes of God. And we have covered a couple of very important attributes of God, God's eternality and God's spirituality. And this morning, we're going to cover a very challenging topic known as the sovereignty of God the sovereignty of God. I've entitled the message this morning, Our Sovereign God. And uh, our text is going to be Psalm 103.19, if you could be working your way there. And by the way, uh, we have provided notes, uh, as always. You should have a little two-page uh, note here. These are just ways in which we can help kind of learn this a little bit better. It helps if you kind of more than just listen, but you have all parts kind of involved, taking notes um, and getting this kind of fixed in our mind. And plus, by the time we're done with this, you should have a good 20 or 30 page uh, little pamphlet or booklet, as it were, on the attributes of God. And, and that would be a, a very nice little resource to have. So make your way to Psalm 103, verse 19, as we begin. And uh, as you're making your way there, I'm going to read you some historical quotes on this issue just by way of uh, introduction to the challenging yet exciting and thrilling, really, aspect of, of our sovereign God. I want to begin with a quote by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards said, Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of his glory. It has been often my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. It was Spurgeon that said, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I lay my head at night. We'll hear more from him a little bit later. Pink says that uh, the sovereignty of God really expresses the godness of God. Interesting how he sees that. John Piper, familiar with him, says the sovereignty of God is the continental divide of theology. Interesting quote there where he is seeing your understanding of the sovereignty of God as ending up in uh, very possibly two particular different oceans of theology. And he's right. And it was R.C. Sproul in that classic uh, Sprulian humor that he had. He says, the sovereignty of God is God's favorite doctrine. 
And he says, it would be your favorite doctrine if you were God. Well, when we look at all of these quotes here, we are forced to ask the question, what do we mean by this issue of the sovereignty of God? And in your notes, I have provided a brief definition that we'll be working with here. And this is how I have defined it, kind of a theological definition, as it were. But what are we saying when we make reference to the sovereignty of God? It's a very important doctrine. It's a, it's a doctrine that is a source of great, great comfort to the believer. And I, I pray that it will be this way uh, for you today. I've defined God's sovereignty as God reveal, or, or the attribute of God, rather, by which he, in, he reveals himself as king. That he reveals himself as king and supreme ruler and lawgiver of the entire universe, having complete authority and rule over his creation, while alone possessing absolute self-determination. Now, there's a lot in there. That's why I've given you the sheet and, and the definition written out. But basically, we could define the sovereignty of God as God being God. It's just God being God as the, as the supreme king and ruler and lawgiver of the entire universe. And there's great comfort to be, to be gleaned over this. God being the final authority. God having the right to make governing decisions. And God being dictated uh, uh, by no one. That's the sovereignty of God. And as we expound this, Psalm uh, 103 gives us, in an amazing economy of words, in verse 19, if you would look at that with me. I'm going to read it in, in your presence today. Psalm 103, verse 19, here it is. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And here it is. His sovereignty rules over all. I'm reading from the New American Standard, which translates that word so uh, uh, sovereignty. Uh, yours might be his authority, or yours might be his kingdom. And really, it's all referring to the same thing. That is the kingdom and the rule and the authority and the power and the sovereignty of God. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. We're going to take a moment to kind of pick apart this verse as we just look at each word here. Would you note in the text, first of all, it says the Lord. And here again is Yahweh. Whenever you see um, uh, the capital letters here. Uh, and, and that is the eternal one, Yahweh, the I am, the, 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 the fact that uh, he does not want to have anyone mistake who he is. He is God. He is the Lord. And this is the one who, will you note, has established. Notice the tense of that word, has established. Not that he will establish, not that he would like to establish, not like he's trying to establish, not that he once established but lost it. No, this is the past perfect tense of the verb. It means it is done. It is established. He has established his throne. This is not something he's working on. This is not something that he would like to pull off one day. He has established his throne. Will you note that it says in the text, his throne? His throne is what he's established. What is that? But none other than the seat of his rule and the seat of his power the seat of his authority, the seat of his sovereignty. He has established that. And we have to ask the question, where has he established that? Well, the text tells us that as well. It says the Lord has established his throne, will you note, in the heavens. In the heavens. This is not an earthly throne. Uh, this is not 
a kingly throne, as it were, of men. This is a throne that is above that type of throne. It is above all earthly thrones, above all earthly dominions. This is the highest throne. This is the, the, the highest kingly court known to man. It is God's throne, and it is in the heavens. That's kind of the declaration there that he has established his throne in the heavens. But here we note our concept for today's lesson. Not only has he established his throne in the heavens, but his sovereignty rules over all. Powerful, powerful, just one verse scripture making a bold declaration of who God is with respect to his sovereignty. His sovereignty rules over all. And what is his sovereignty? None other than his authority, his rule, his power, his kingdom, his determination, his word, if you will, his will, if you will, his law, his royalty, his majesty, his kingliness, uh, uh, get, um, understanding what Pink said, his godness. That's what it's referring to, his sovereignty. And will you note that the text says of this sovereignty that it rules it rules. Present tense. His sovereignty rules. Again, it doesn't say his sovereignty will rule one day. It does not say his sovereignty once ruled in a day gone by. It doesn't say that uh, his sovereignty would like to rule, but it keeps getting overthrown by the affairs and the, the actions of men. It doesn't say that, that God's sovereignty would like to rule or tries to rule or hopes to rule or dreams to rule or wishes to rule. It says his sovereignty, present tense, rules over all. This is, this is in position. The king is in state. And will you note here our final word in this little one verse text here? His sovereignty rules over all. It rules over all. What does that mean? It means that God's sovereignty is not restricted. God's sovereignty is not limited. God's sovereignty is not constrained by any power other than his own nature. Uh, God's sovereignty, it, it is not as if um, uh, God is sovereign over some portions of the universe, some territories, some individuals, a parcel of land here, a strip of individuals over here, not not whatsoever. The, the scripture says his sovereignty rules over all. And we're going to be spending the rest of our time this morning just kind of looking at that word all and, and how expansive it really is. But before we go that, I wanted to, uh, before we do that rather, I wanted to just tell you this is not a, uh, a unique concept in the scriptures. In fact, the scriptures are replete uh, or, or full, as it were, of the, these teachings. Since we're... Um, uh, and, and by the way, I would just say, um, the Bible makes no attempt to hide this doctrine from the sons of men. Uh, the Bible makes no attempt to, to soft sell this. Or You'll see the scripture declares this truth. I mean, you, you actually have to, to hide from it. You have to go to a, a liberal church or a liberal school or an unbelieving or unbiblical uh, environment feeling-driven environment to, to uh, avoid the truth of God's sovereignty. In fact, one writer said that you have to, you have to read your Bible um, in a dark room, upside down, with eyes closed, with hands over your eyes, in a delusional state, to miss the reality of the sovereignty of God in the scriptures. Oh, it's not hard to find, beloved. 
It's not hard to see. It's not even hard to understand, as we will see by the conclusion of this lesson. It is hard to swallow, though. It is especially hard to swallow if you are stiff-necked, as the Bible calls man, if you are stubborn, and if um, you are carnal of mind, because the carnal mind does not receive the things of the Father, and especially the sovereignty of God, the carnal mind simply will not accept. But it's everywhere in Scripture. Would you turn to the left a little bit? First of all, Psalm 93, we see similar uh, wording in Psalm 93, verse 1, right out of the chute, the psalmist wants this to be made known. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. It's the Lord, though, that reigns, not Satan, not God and Satan, not bad men reign, not even good men reign. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say circumstances reign or fate reigns or good luck or bad luck or karma. It doesn't say any of that. It says the Lord reigns. And uh, the universe is simply not run by a democracy. At least God's universe does not. It is a theocracy. Look at uh, Psalm uh, 97 in verse 1. Psalm 97 is almost an echo of this. Again, first verse right out of the chute. The psalmist wants this made very clear before he says anything else. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. And then it says, let the earth rejoice. Some of you who heard my personal testimony know that this scripture was what brought me to my needs. That it's the Lord, uh, my knees rather, it's the Lord that reigns. He is the one in charge, and I am not in charge. And I had to face that as a young man. But then it says, let the many islands be glad. There's a gladness associated with this doctrine. Um, but the throne is occupied. The scepter is in his hand. And he reigns in authority. He reigns in good times. He reigns in bad times. He, he reigns in prosperity. He, he reigns in times of need. He reigns in times of life. He reigns in times of death and in, in, in adversity and in good times, the Lord reigns. Would you look again at Psalm 99, verse 1? Are we getting a message here? Is God trying to make a point here? 99, verse 1, the Lord reigns. And then it says, let the peoples tremble. There's an element here of fear in the sovereignty of God, as well as rejoicing and peace and comfort, which I hope to be able to demonstrate. But God reigns. He reigns over boundaries. He reigns over nations, as we will see in events and circumstances. He reigns over good and evil and human minds and human wills and human destinies. We can sing with Revelation 19 and verse 6, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And that is a beautiful, beautiful truth to embrace as a Christian. Well, with the time we have left this morning, I promise to kind of explain our text a little more and with respect to that little word all. What does that mean when it says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all? We're going to look at that and that's really going to be the uh, remainder of, of your outline here today. We're going, to, we're going to kind of pick apart what that means to reign over all things. If you're following along in the first point of your outline, you'll see that it says God is sovereign in blank. And I'd like you to fill in that blank with our first point. As we look at how God reigns, we're going to look at three or four categories today, depending on time. But first of all, we need to point out that God, God is sovereign, or he reigns, if you will, 
in creation. Would you write that in? He is sovereign in creation. Now, now nobody disputes this fact, really. And when we look at the details of this, you're, you're, you'll not dispute this either. Um, God, God reigns in creation. And, and why nobody disputes this fact is because nobody was around at the time when this fact occurred, when God created is what I'm referring to here. And so, you know, we could go to Genesis chapter 1. I, I'm not going to take you there for time's sake. We're just going to reference some of these truths here. But you remember Genesis, Genesis 1 speaks about God created the heavens and earth uh, in, in the beginning. And there was this uh, creation of the universe that did not exist. And it begins, if you're taking notes under this point, it begins by creating the heavens. God created the heavens uh, and the earth, the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars, the planets. Uh, why, why did God make Jupiter so big? And why did he make Pluto so small? And by the way, Pluto, uh, I think they're trying to call it a moon now or a, a dwarf planet. I'll have nothing to do with that. Pluto will always be a planet in my book, even though it's one of our smallest planets. But but why did he make Pluto so small? And why did he make Jupiter so so amazingly large. And why did he make some stars so bright and, and some dim as Second Corinthians 15, 41 speaks of? And, and, and what about the shooting stars and, and why? Well, it must have been good in thy sight is really the only answer. This must have been some goodness of God that he wanted to put on display. He created the earth as well with the laws of of gravity that appear to be fixed, other laws that appear to operate at random. And sometimes even the, the uh, most developed scientific mind can't, can't always get its mind around the fact that some things appear to be clear and fixed, and yet there's some things in life that just appear to act as random. And why did God cover the earth, the globe that we live in, with two-thirds water and one-third land? Why didn't he reverse that and and do uh, one-thirds water and two-thirds land? Why are some places on earth inhabitable and some places simply are uninhabitable? Why are some fertile and some barren? Why are some areas plagued with earthquakes like Los Angeles? When Sarah and I were in seminary in Los Angeles, we got to experience many times earthquakes and aftershocks. But why, like in a place like Rapid City, are they virtually not even heard of? And, and uh, why, um, why all this variety in the planet? Well, it must have been good in thy sight as we surrender to the truth of God's sovereignty and creation. Well, what about the plants and the trees, some tall, some small, some, some basic with green colors and other plants exploding with beautiful, all the colors of the rainbow? Why are some plants a source of healing and yet some will kill you dead as poison the moment you taste it? Yeah, what about the animal kingdom and the wonder, uh, the wondrous, magnificent variety of the animal kingdom? Some animals appear in, uh, in beauty and in strength like the lion and the leopard or the beauty of the peacock. And, and why do some animals live to be 100 years old like the, the famous bowhead whale? And why on the other spectrum are there some insects that die the very second they are born? Well, uh, why are some confined to a life of burden like the ox and others fly freely in the air as the eagle? 
Why are some predators and some prey? All of the answers to this question is that these were created for thy glory and it must have been good in thy sight. And we can add here the crowning creation of man as we look at God's sovereignty in creation. Man being the crowning uh, uh, component of God's sovereign, sovereign expression. Let us make man in our image. And yet he brings us up from the dust and yet we are declared to be made in his image. Why some men strong, some frail. Why some, some men made with dark skin, and I'm saying men and women, and some men and women made with light skin. Why do some live deep into old age, a century or more, and some uh, die at the moment of birth? Why is this? We, we must have a view of the sovereignty of God that he holds our days in his hands, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But we have to first of all understand that God is indeed sovereign in creation. I need to hasten to move on here because there's other points. But not only is God sovereign in creation, but as we move to our second point, would you please write in that God is also sovereign in providence. God is also sovereign in providence. Because very few would debate that God sovereignly and by fiat command called the earth and the heavens and light and everything we know about our existence into existence. But some will say, but, but then he left it all kind of up to chance. He kind of stepped away from it. He made it. And then he said, there, here's the fixed rules by which you'll exist. And then and he kind of leaves kind of hands off, kind of laissez-faire type of government of the universe. God created, but does he remain involved with his creation is the question. And that is the issue of point two, that yes, he does stay involved. He stays involved through providence. He's sovereign in creating it, but he's also sovereign in providence. Providence is simply this, God's careful governance, God's careful government of the universe that he created. Now, he's not seen doing this. Providence is not seen. And we speak of, of providence uh, sometimes being as sweet and uh, enjoyable providence. That would be what we would call good times, or, or pagans will call this good luck or good karma. And yet we will also speak of bitter providence. We will speak of bright days. We will speak of dark days, comforting and, and pleasurable circumstances that come our way, and also discomforting and painful circumstances that come our way. The older we get, the more attuned and accustomed we become to discerning the hand of providence. And it's God's hand, and we see his hand in our lives, especially looking back at the tapestry, as it were, as the backside of our lives. At the time, we don't know what was being woven but then we can step back and we can see the beautiful tapestry that has been created with our lives. But you only get that through walking with the Lord and through knowing his word and through interpreting the events of your life through his word. Because you can't always interpret providence. And we'll see shortly why that is the case. But under this point of providence, would you please note that he, is, he exercises his providence in nature. In nature, that is the seas and the deep, uh, the waters. Would you turn quickly, since we're in uh, Psalm, uh, the Psalms anyway, to Psalm 135. This is a very important little uh, portion of Scripture speaking to uh, the earth. 
And the seas and the deep, Psalm 135, verse 5, says, I know that the Lord is great. Good theology here, David. David is writing this psalm. I know that the Lord is great and that the Lord, our Lord, is above all gods. Look at verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. I, I love this. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Verse 6. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Here, God claiming providential power over what occurs in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in the deeps. Now watch verse 7. He causes the vapors, or the, some of your translations will say clouds. He, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. What is this telling us? This is telling us that the sovereign God, who's in charge not only of creation, but is also in charge of guiding that creation, draws forth even the weather out of his treasuries. The hydrological cycles, the vapors, the rains, the winds, the lightnings, all coming forth from the treasuries of God. The God, by the way, who does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in the deep. This is the, this is the power of the God we serve. You will remember God being in control of that several times in the scriptures. I think of Jonah. Remember Jonah in verse uh, chapters 1 verse 4? where Jonah, that disobedient prophet, had to, had to um, have his theology set straight about this issue. And it says that the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, that there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Isn't that something? Uh, if we slow down and we look at that, and that is a, that is a good text to meditate on perhaps uh, later on in your personal studies, Jonah 1.4, will you note the Lord hurled? The Lord did it. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. He controls the weather. That there was a great storm on the sea and that the ship was about to break up all, the, all at the hand of God himself. And uh, the sun and the moon is another example here. Remember in Joshua 10, 12 through 13, where the Lord caused the sun and the moon to stand still while Israel avenged themselves. Or Isaiah 38, verse 8, where the sun went back 10 steps on the steps. Remember that uh, in, the, in the time of Ahaz. And then Hezekiah was granted 15 more years of life due to his appeal to God. Where here God is then intervening and, and, and governing and maneuvering and manipulating the sun and the moon and even the uh, span of a man's life. These are some very, very important words to understand, especially in our time and the challenges that we're facing with. We need a sovereign God right now. We need a God who controls the affairs of this world. Otherwise, we're left to ourselves or we're left to Satan controlling it. But we must understand the scriptures make very clear claim that God is involved here. God controls the weather. Exodus 9, 23 through 26, remember that plague of hail. Or Exodus 10, that plague of darkness. And I just love Nahum 1 and verse 3. His way, that is God's way, his way is in the whirlwind and the storm. That's a fascinating verse of scripture. I wish we could spend more time on it. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. 
Are you experiencing some storms of life right now? Obviously, he's speaking about the weather. But metaphorically speaking, if his way is in the simple complexities of the weather, can they not also be in your life as well? And the whirlwinds of life and the storms of life. We must understand the providential hand of our God. He is exercising providence over nature. Would you jot down also that he exercises providence over animals? we got a lot to cover today, folks. We're going to really make you work here this morning. Providence over animals. Yes, you remember Noah's Ark, right? How did, how did all those animals cooperate? I mean, think about this for a moment. All those animals cooperating and not fighting and not uh, consuming the people that are trying to get them onto the ark. Obviously, God's hand in a providential, supernatural manner guided those animals into the ark. What about 1 Kings 17? Another illustration. Remember when Elijah... Uh, it says uh, the ravens carried food to Elijah. It says uh, God saying, I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there, Elijah, meat and bread and morning and evening. The ravens were doing the bidding of their creator for the service of uh, Elijah at that point, or Daniel in the lion's den. There's uh, illustration after illustration. Uh, how did how did God shut the mouths of those lions in that den? I, I I mean I sometimes wonder what's worse, Daniel being in a den of lions, or uh, a lion being in a den of Daniels. When when God is in control and when God is supernaturally overseeing the affairs of of life, men and animals and weather. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing truth. It is, uh, it is his providence over nature. It is his providence over animals. Would you also note his providence over nations? It's getting, it's getting bigger and complex here. Acts 14, 16 says that God permitted the nations to go their own way. That there was this element at one time that nations could just do their own thing. Or Acts 17.24, this is a fascinating one. Acts 17.24, which talks about God establishing the boundaries of our habitation. That he has, he has in a sense, placed us in the nation with the boundaries that it has for his sovereign purposes, which we may not fully understand, but God's established our boundaries. And that's an amazing truth when you study history and when you study warfare and when we study nation conquering nation and new borders coming up and dictators rising and, and falling and famines in the land and refugees and immigrants and even genocide starts to make sense, at least gives us a, a fuller understanding that God is not just hiding his eyes up in heaven, biting his nails saying, oh, I, I, I didn't plan for this or I, I don't know what to do with this. And we understand that he is in control even of nations. Now, he is, he is never in charge. He is never to be blamed with sin. We need to make this point very clear. And we will uh, later on that, that he is never to be charged with sin or lawlessness or wickedness. But nonetheless, he, he molds that and he guides that to accomplish his will. God is also exercising providence over governments and rulers. And we could take you to a number of places here. Second Chronicles 20 is one that talks about governments. Are you not the God in heaven? Are you not, note this, ruler over all the kingdoms and the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. He is the king. And the king endures and governs the nations. Romans 13.1 is another example about God. It says, ordaining the powers that be. 
and that the authority of the governments and of those nations are designed and instituted by God for our good. And he is guiding that. And he guides nations, classic, classic examples like I think of Assyria. Assyria, where God essentially says, Assyria is going to be my chosen instrument. This wicked, godless nation. I'm going to, to pick up kind of like a cat by the scruff of a neck. And then I am going to use Assyria as a rod for my people Israel. And I'm going to unleash Assyria on my people Israel. Now that's fascinating enough that God would choose an ungodly nation to become the disciplinarian, the hand of judgment for the people of God. And then when you read that account there about Assyria, you then read that God then in turn disciplines Assyria for its wickedness. And this is, this is deep, deep stuff here, but this is our God. And if you, if you complain about that or if you bristle about that, I would point you to Isaiah 10, 15, which says, be careful. Be careful if you dig too deep in this and you start to wonder too far into this. Isaiah 10, 15 says, will the axe boast itself over the one who chops with it? I mean, think of that. You're chopping with, with an axe. And then could you imagine the axe saying, look what I did. Look what I can do. And this is in reference to that situation with Assyria. Will the axe boast itself over the one who chops with it? Or will the saw exalt itself over the, ones, or over the one who wields it? He's drawing, he's underscoring the fact that God is in charge. And I could also talk about rulers and particular rulers. Uh, you're familiar with this. Pro Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart. We, we talked about the government. What about the leaders of the government? Are, are they just doing what they want? Are they just out of control beings that, that can at their beckons will do whatever they want? Not in the least because Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. Note this, he turns it wherever he wishes. We need to understand, we need to have a proper view of, of government and governmental leaders that their heart is in the king, the king's heart rather, is in the, the, the Lord's hand and, and like channels of water, he's steering it, he's affecting it, he's accomplishing his will. This is why we don't get freaked out at the change of a regime or, or if it's not our particular political uh, uh, position or our desire or our, our particular candidate. It really doesn't matter when it comes to it. It does matter to a certain degree, but really in an ultimate degree, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. God is working through this. Daniel 2.20 speaks about how God brings kings and presidents up and he brings kings down. And sometimes he brings kings up to bring them down. And there are many, many more examples of that, of God's providence. And not only that, but God's providence in our daily lives. If we can trust him with nature and we can trust him with animals and we can trust him with the nations and governments and rulers. Could we also not trust him with our daily lives? And he is in charge of our daily lives. He's in charge of the timing of our birth. And he's in charge of the timing of our death. All our moments in between are timed perfectly to, to bring God the most glory and to bring us the most good. And we need to trust in that in our circumstances. We need to trust in, in the fact that although we may not understand certain circumstances, we may not understand what is occurring in our lives and in our nation and, and in the world at large, but we understand the God who controls it all. And because he's sovereign in providence. 
and he's sovereign in creation. I need to just give you two more points briefly here before we leave this morning. Would you note also, point three, that God is sovereign in redemption. Praise God. He's sovereign in redemption. I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this point at all because I have an entire series that speaks to the issue of redemption. It's called Our Great Salvation, and great it is indeed. Because the same God who sovereignly created the earth and and who sovereignly rules that earth also sovereignly redeems that earth, redeems fallen man. He redeems us, if you're taking notes still, and I hope you are. He redeems us by providing a Savior. He sovereignly provides a Savior for us. 1 Peter 1.20 talks about the Lord Jesus Christ being chosen and precious to effect a work of redemption. Acts 2.23 speaks of this Savior and his work and his crucifixion being predetermined and, and appointed by God. And yet... He was nailed to the cross by godless men. How does that work? I don't know. But God designed this from the beginning of time that he would provide a savior. He he also provides our election, Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. We don't have time to go there, but spend time in Ephesians 1 and, and Romans 9. That is clearly God at work from the beginning of time, determining that we could be saved. And, and he determines the very time and the moment of our, no, our, of our new birth. John 1, 12 says that we are born not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but we are born of God. And 1 Peter 1, 3 says God has caused us to be born again. And James 1, 18 says that he brought us forth by the word. And, and we're, we're given life and the timing of that life is designed and the circumstances and who would bring you the gospel at that moment. And then he, he places us in the local church and then he sanctifies us and he grows us and he strengthens us. He tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work within us. And he perseveres us to the end. We persevere, actually. He secures us to the end, but we must persevere and we, we, we must not deny the faith because he is faithful and he has designed an end to this thing called redemption. God is sovereign in redemption. I need to give just one more point. God is not only sovereign in creation and providence and in redemption, but fourth and finally today, will you note that God is also sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over evil. I have to have this last point in before we leave this morning because your question will be, well, what about evil? What about sin? What about the devil? And I can't devote a lot of time to this today. Each one of these points that I gave you, these four points, it could be a whole course on just one of these points alone. I hope you're seeing that, that fact already. But, but God is sovereign over evil. Now, now, note that I said is sovereign over evil. I did not say that God originates evil. I did not say that God is the source of evil. You cannot ever view God in those terms. In fact, when you, when you look at evil in the scripture and when you look at God, you will see that God clearly distances himself from evil. He clearly, his holiness, which we will study next week, Lord willing, we're going to study the holiness of God. God is distancing himself from all evil. But he doesn't distance himself so far from evil that he is not able to govern it 
and to use it for his purposes and ultimately to destroy it, to fix the problem of evil once and for all. He distances himself from it, but not to the point of not being able to deal with it once and for all. God is sovereign over evil. That is saying over sickness and deformity and disease. It was Moses who uh, God asked the question of, who made the deaf? Who made the dumb? And remember, Moses didn't want to speak, didn't want to be the spokesman. Oh, I don't speak very well. Who made the deaf? Who made the, who made the person that can't speak? Is it not I, the Lord? Or how about in John 9, when they asked our Lord the question, who sinned? I'm sorry, John 4. Who sinned, this man or his parents? None of them sinned, but that the works of God might be manifest in him. And so God is affecting his purposes over the evil of sickness, the evil of deformity that can, that can strike us all, and the evil of disease which we are currently under. Folks, you must have a sovereign view of God if you're going to survive mentally this crisis that, that this land is in. And people are unraveling about this issue. And the saints of God need not unravel. They must understand, though, if they're going to not unravel, that God is sovereign over sickness and disease. That the works of God might be displayed. And we don't know what all of those works are in this current moment of distress. But he's sovereign over it. He's also, would you note, sovereign over Satan and demons. Remember Job 1 and 2. Satan there, we won't go to that. But Satan having to come to God. Having to get permission from God. Have you considered my, my uh, servant Job? Actually, God's coming to Satan. But, but Job is, man, uh, the devil's manifesting himself. Well, you're only protecting him. You're only doing this. But then God says, well, have at him. Uh, you do have some boundaries, Satan, to work within. But have at him. Don't touch his body. Don't touch his life. And then later some of that changed, but God was working his will in that situation. And even Job himself had to rebuke his wife, remember in Job 2.10, because his wife was beginning to, to really struggle with what was happening there. And Job, I remember, he said to his wife, you sound like, because his wife says, well, Job, maybe you ought to try this. How about try and curse God and die? Well, I mean, you try, you know, we haven't tried that yet. How about we try cursing God? How about you die, Job? And Job says, you, you speak as one of the foolish women. You speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we not take good at the hand of the Lord and also adversity? How can we, how can we be so selfish as to say we're only going to take good from the hand of God and not adversity, which, by the way, adversity is what builds character. We're, we're not going to take adversity. We'll take all the good. We'll take all the good days and all the sweet providence, but we, we won't take the bitter providences of God. We need to understand this, that Satan and demons have to answer to God and have to get permission to do what they do. It's not this equal ultimacy out here. It's not God and the devil as equals kind of warring it out, depending who takes most advantage of one not at all the devil is the god is god's devil and he's on a chain and he doesn't blink an eye without his master's permission and it is being filtered all of the torments and all of the difficulties and and challenges that sometimes have demonic nature god is overseeing that and uh, you can go to first samuel 16 where we read that god uh, sent an evil spirit from the Lord to visit Saul. Mysterious, mysterious truth about that. But God using evil to accomplish his good in the people 
of God. Now, I want to also say under this point of God being sovereign over evil, that it also includes the evil deeds and schemes of men. Because sometimes you can say, well, it's just circumstances and that's just how it happened. But, but sometimes you have to say, no, that, that person schemed this. This person contrived this. And it, and it affected me negatively. And we have all been victims of people and their evil deeds and their evil schemes. But listen, we have to be mature about this. We have to understand this and filter this through the sovereignty of God. Joseph's brothers, right? That's the classic example. Genesis 50 and verse 20. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. You had your little scheme and your scheme was evil and it was wicked and it was lawless. But God reformed this and revived this and he took all of your evil efforts and he turned them into good. And of course, you know the story of uh, Joseph and the book of Genesis and all of the good that came out of a result of that. We could list many other evil acts, the crucifixion itself being the pinnacle you nailed to the cross by hands of godless men. And there is no more wicked act. There is no more wicked act than crucifying the Lord of life. There, there is no more evil deed that could have been propagated against an innocent man than, than his crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And yet that resulted in you and I coming to faith and being redeemed. How does that work? I don't know. Don't, I can't answer how that worked, how the hands of evil men could result in the crucifixion and redemption of mankind. But it's a beautiful truth that we rest in. And so the evil deeds and schemes of men have to be subjected to this as well. And I'll even just add finally the, the meaningful choices of man. All of this does not mean that we don't have choices and that we don't have a will. Uh, Proverbs 16.9 says the will of man is real and, and that, um, that, that we actually do make meaningful choices. But God does direct our step. Man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And I just want to tell you, I know I'm going on long here. I'm sorry about this, guys, but uh, this truth is so important. And, and we need to come to grips with that. And I want to give you a book here um, by Randy Alcorn. If you don't have this, you're going to want to get this. He tackles all the questions. It's called hand in hand. And, and he, he's choosing his words carefully. And he's even, choosing his, he's even choosing his capital letters carefully here. Hand in small letters, not capitalized. In hand, big letters capitalized. I think you get the point, right? That, that our hand, which, which does things and makes decisions, our life on this earth, are in God's hands, who makes ultimate decisions with how things play out. And I'll just say, this is a fascinating little book. It goes through all the different views of the sovereignty of God and the, and the volitional uh, capacity of man. But I, I want to definitely uh, turn you on to that book. And, and uh, we'll lend it to you if you aren't able to buy that. But everybody should have that book in their library. Randy Alcorn, Hand in Hand. Well, I need to conclude. I've used a lot of time this morning, but it's on a very, very important topic. <clears throat> I want to close with uh, the words of A.W. Pink, where he says, here then is a sure resting place for the heart. I mean, we've, we've worked hard this morning. Our, our, our brains are probably boiled, but here's what it all comes down to. That here is a sure resting place for the heart. 
Our lives are neither the product of blind fate nor the result of capricious chance, he says, but every detail of them was ordained from all eternity. And this is now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without his permission. What assurance this gives. What strength this offers. What, comforts this, what comfort this should give the real Christian. My times are in thy hand, Psalm 31. Let me rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, Psalm 37. Let us rest. Let us wait patiently for him. Remember in the beginning I said that Charles Spurgeon chooses the attribute of God's sovereignty to rest his head upon every night. And he writes, there is no attribute that is more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe the, that sovereignty has ordained their affliction and that sovereignty overrules it and that sovereignty will ultima, ultimately sanctify it all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master who is over all creation and the kingship of God who is over all the works of his hand the throne of God and his right hand to sit upon that throne is under the sovereignty of God. What a, what a wonderful truth. And I, I pray that truth is yours this morning. If you've been challenged by this, there's so many resources that, that you can dig deeper on. I want to call us just to trust in the sovereignty of God this morning. By way of application, we just need to trust. We just need to understand that that our lives are in his hands and our circumstances are in his hands and nothing gets to us without being first filtered through that. And so we trust by way of application. We also submit by way of application. We submit to the courses of our lives. And yes, while we may make every effort to try to make them better and to, to bring maximum glory to God out of it, ultimately we do not kick against this truth. We do not bicker about this truth. We do not. This truth is not designed to, to, to cause divisions in the church or to have people fight about. This truth is designed for us to rest in and to understand the ultimate sovereignty of our God on ultimately giving praise to God. Praise for his wondrous, wondrous power in our lives as we see it manifested. And we sing with Isaac Watts the, the, the poem in your notes here today. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord who filled the earth with food, who formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed wherever I turn my eye, if I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky. And then finally, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order of thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, and everywhere that man can be, thou, God, art present there. That's the view. That's the spirit. That's the idea that we need to have. And I trust today that you rest in the sovereignty of God. Amen and amen. Lord bless you as you look at God's careful watch over you in the week to come. We'll see you next week as we study in the holiness of God. Lord bless and have a wonderful week.